This Sunday, I am going to be beginning a series of messages working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is one of the most challenging and one of the most neglected of all of Paul's letters. And the reason for the challenge with the letter is because the history behind the letter and the events and circumstances that surrounded the writing of it are not always clear, now some 2,000 years after the time Paul wrote it. But in spite of all the challenges in the book, and there are a number of them in interpreting it, 2 Corinthians is of immense importance because it is the most powerful defense anywhere of Paul's apostleship and of his ministry. It's important for that reason, but not only that, it is important for us because Paul addresses all sorts of practical issues which are still part of congregational life 2,000 years after he wrote the letter. He addresses, for example, things like conflicts between pastor and congregation. How do you work those things out? Uh, he addresses what should Christian ministry really look like. Um, he speaks of the issue of pastoral salaries in the book. Uh, he calls churches like ours who are more well-off than many churches other places around the world to be engaged in supporting in tangible financial ways Christians and churches in other places who aren't doing so well. Uh, he addresses the issue of trials in life, why they come, how you handle them, the blessing and benefit that can come from personal trials in life. Uh, he addresses in this book the issue, the issue of sexual immorality in the church should not be tolerated. Paul, as you can imagine, argues in the letter. He sets forth what the gospel really is and how it should be reflected in our personal lives, in congregational life. And so there is a tremendous amount of practical issues that we're going to be dealing with. He deals with offerings. Why should a church give generously? And how should you give? And what should motivate you? All sorts of things in this tremendous letter. And so over these next number of months, we'll be working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians uh, section by section from beginning to end. Before we launch into just the two simple verses this morning, just a little something about the city of Corinth and uh, the circumstances that lie behind this letter. Uh, to realize, first of all, that the city of Corinth was a fairly new city in Paul's day. In fact, when Paul visited it as a missionary, uh, the city was only about 80 years old. Um, it had been, there had been an ancient Greek city on the site for many, many centuries. But when Corinth tried to resist Roman expansion, as the Roman Empire was growing and expanding, the Romans utterly defeated Corinth, and out of vengeance, they utterly annihilated the city, and they slaughtered all of the inhabitants. It's a terrible story to read. And once the city was obliterated and the inhabitants who didn't scatter for their lives were all slaughtered, the, the city of Corinth, the area where it had been, remained uninhabited literally for a hundred years. But then just 
shortly before Jesus was born, several decades, in the year 44 B.C., Julius Caesar decided to rebuild the city, uh, this time as a Roman colony. And so the work of rebuilding Corinth from a barren landscape began. And the city experienced amazing growth, especially amazing economic growth. It was, in essence, what one author called a freewheeling boomtown, even in Paul's day. So when Paul visited the city of Corinth from nothing, 80 years earlier, was already 80,000 uh, inhabitants of the city. In fact, uh, the city of Corinth by Paul's day had become the third most important city in the Roman Empire, largely because it was a tremendous trade center, a tremendous economic powerhouse. And so as this new frontier city, if you will, uh, Corinth was populated by immigrants from all over the ancient world, families looking for jobs, uh, families looking for a new start, a new beginning. They heard there was money to be made in this new splendid city. And so people moved to Corinth from all over the ancient Roman world. Something else about Corinth besides being a thriving economy. The Corinthian culture was immersed in sports and entertainment. That marked them very strongly. Uh, every other year, Corinth hosted the uh, famous Isthmian Games, which was second only to the sacred Olympics, the ancient Greek Olympics. Uh, the city had a grand theater that seated 18,000. It had a concert hall that seated 3,000. And like our modern, western, decadent culture, Corinth was marked by wide-open sexual immorality, it was marked by an obsession with sports and entertainment. It was marked by religious pluralism. Whatever you want to believe is fine. Individualism, arrogance, self-confidence, all of those things marked Corinth. Uh, in fact, uh, the similarities between modern American society and really all of decadent Western culture, the, the similarities between modern American society and Corinth are so striking um, that Ray Stedman, some of you maybe are familiar with him, uh, pastored a Peninsula Bible Church in uh, Palo Alto, California for about 40 years. Uh, he would refer to the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians as first and second Californians, without really any exaggeration. And now, of course, California has split, spread everywhere, hasn't it, across the U.S.? Well, in the year 49, or maybe in the year 50, Paul was the first missionary to come to this freewheeling boom town where anything goes. And so you can understand why Paul went to Corinth. It was the third most influential city. It was large, it was booming, it was growing. Not only the population of 80,000, but it was frequented by merchants and travelers. It was a tourist destination. Sports fans from all over the Mediterranean world would come there for the various games and sporting events. It was a manufacturing center. It was a marketing center. Uh, there was a service sector, all of these things. And so Paul, realizing the dynamics of this place, plus all the people that came through, not only the population there, Paul goes there to that city 
to proclaim Christ in the hopes that when a congregation is founded and all these sports fans and traders and merchants and tourists and everybody comes through, they may encounter some of the Christians, they can hear the gospel, they can be converted, and they can take the message back to wherever they came from. So Paul had a wonderful mission strategy as he came to the city of Corinth. I want you to turn with me, before we look at the first two verses of, of, our, of, uh, of 2 Corinthians, turn with me to Acts chapter 18, because I want you to notice how the church got going. Acts chapter 18, I'm not going to read the account in the chapter. I want to just highlight a handful of verses uh, as, as Luke describes Paul's initial mission work in the city of Corinth. Acts chapter 18. You notice the first verse, it says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, all right? So Paul arrives, but what I want you to see is this was not a lone person endeavor. It wasn't just Paul on his own, but there was a whole mission team who worked with him as he went to Corinth. So you notice in verse 2, it mentions a Jewish couple that had been expelled from Rome because the Roman emperor had kicked all Jews out of the city of Rome. They're nothing but trouble. That was his attitude. And so this Christian Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla, arrived in Corinth. And so Paul enlists them in the work of the gospel in the ministry. And then you notice as you go down to verse 5, it says when Silas and Timothy arrived. So you've got Paul, the husband and wife team of Aquila and Priscilla, you have Silas, and you have Timothy. So you have a whole mission team there in the city of Corinth, each with his or her own responsibilities, proclaiming Christ, spreading the gospel. Well, notice how this mission unfolded. Look at verse, uh, at verse 4. So Paul came to the city, and he starts out as he always did in the Jewish synagogue, wherever he went. And so verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. In ancient times, there were a lot of Gentiles who went to synagogue services because they recognized there's only one God and the Jews know what they're talking about. And so Paul would go to the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried to persuade, he preached Christ in an energetic and forceful way. But opposition rose up in the synagogue. And so you notice in verse 6, many in the synagogue, verse 6, they opposed and reviled him. After a little while, he wasn't making any headway. There was hostility, very open, bitter hostility. So what does Paul do? He says at the end of verse 6, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And verse 7, so he left the synagogue, verse 7 says... And went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was right next door to the synagogue. So he didn't go far. So he left the synagogue. He goes to the house next door. And he continues using that as his base of mission and ministry operation. Well, how long did this mission last? Look down at verse 11. It says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This was not a short-term mission project. He was there for a year and a half, proclaiming the gospel, witnessing, evangelizing, organizing, building a congregation. 
And I want you to notice one more thing in this passage is the mission that he engaged in along with Silas and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla. The mission was a tremendous success. Look at verse 8. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue of all people, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So there is a great ingathering of souls. There is the establishment of a Christian church. And Paul must have been discouraged because verse 9, because there was a lot of opposition in the city, of course. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, verse 9, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. Verse 10, I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city, for I have many in this city who are my people. There are already some converts, but there's a whole lot more that are written in the book of life. The Spirit is at work in their hearts and lives. Don't give up the mission. There's more to go, more converts to come, the Lord says to Paul in this vision. And so this is the account of how the Corinthian church got established. So after a year and six months, Paul leaves the city of Corinth to continue frontline evangelism elsewhere. But he leaves the city, and not too long afterwards, he hears that there are problems in the Corinthian church. And so Paul sends them two letters. Uh, the first one is lost. We have no idea what it contained or what Paul specifically had to say in it, but Paul makes reference to it in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, where Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, meaning previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. So I already wrote you a letter where I made that point, and in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul expands on that. So there's a letter that he wrote to them. They seemingly didn't listen to it, so he wrote them a follow-up letter, which is our book of 1 Corinthians. And it was a letter that Timothy personally carried to the congregation. And when Timothy brought this letter, what we have in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians, what he discovered in the city and in the congregation was disturbing to him. What he discovered is there were some in the church who had begun to resent the Apostle Paul and to turn away from him and his message. And the reason for that was false religious leaders, false apostles had come to the city and said, we have something better to proclaim to you than this gospel you heard from this Apostle Paul, who isn't re really even an apostle, to be honest, they said. And so there were those who resented Paul, and there were these who came into Corinth. Paul sarcastically calls them in 2 Corinthians super apostles. They came and they turned members of the congregation away from the Apostle Paul, and not just so much him, but the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he had brought to them. And so what is Paul going to do? He decides he needs to make an emergency trip. To Corinth. I mean, you can't let that kind of thing go. Otherwise, the whole gospel, the whole establishment of the church is going to be swept aside. So he makes an emergency visit to Corinth to deal with the issues that had arisen, and the visit didn't go well at all. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul describes it as a very painful visit for him and for them. 
And what happened on this visit, reading between the lines, and this is where 2 Corinthians becomes difficult because you have to read between the lines to figure out what all the issues were that Paul is facing. Let me read you a little paragraph. This is from uh, Dr. R. Kent Hughes, who has written a beautiful little study on 2 Corinthians. Here's what he writes. The apostle's authority, even his apostleship, was called into question. If Paul was for real, why was there so much suffering in his life, they asked. Also, why was his ministry so lackluster when compared with the ministry of others? Why was his preaching so dull? And why did he change his travel plans if God was actually directing his life? Paul has to defend the change of itinerary in the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians because they're all mad that he changed his travel plans. And it's like, you say one thing, you do another. You're untrustworthy. Paul has to defend even changing his plane ticket, if you will. Moreover, what lay behind his refusal to accept payment for his services, as most preachers did? The false apostles took a salary. Paul never did. It's like, well, you must not have a message worth anything then. You know that. That's why you don't take a salary. He has to address that. Was he really collecting money for the poor? Paul was trying to collect money for the poor in Jerusalem. Ah, he's lining his own pockets. This is all a ruse, the enemy said. Why didn't Paul have letters of recommendation like the others? When they came to Corinth, they had a piece of paper. It's like, so-and-so recommends me as a real minister of Christ. Here's the letter that says it. Okay, Paul, why don't you have any of those kind of letters? Is that because you aren't really an apostle? Why didn't he regale them with stories about God's power in ministry? Kind of charismatic kind of stuff. Was it because there was none? Those are the issues that were going on in Corinth. And so Paul makes a visit, and it was painful because nothing went well on the visit. But in addition to the personal attacks that he faced, the questions raised about his authenticity, his authority, his message, what was of particular concern to the Apostle Paul, and we discover this when you get near the end of the letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 4, is the Corinthians were turning to another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And here's what Paul says in 11 and verse 4. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So here comes somebody that proclaims Jesus in a different way, the gospel in a different way, the spirit in a different way. Well, that sounds a lot better. Paul says you put up with that kind of garbage. You readily listen to it. You give credence to it. Some of you accept it. And so Paul made a painful visit to the city. He was devastated. Nothing worked out. He left the city. What to do next? Well, the situation needs to be solved, but Paul decides making another in-person visit probably wouldn't be wise at this point. And so he writes a third letter, which he calls in 2 Corinthians a sorrowful letter. It was seemingly very pointed. I mean, it was, a, it was a strong, strong letter, seemingly, from the hints we get in 2 Corinthians. And the letter did its work. In fact, Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, this letter which also is lost. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And so the letter seemingly did its work. Not everybody repented, as we will find out in 2 Corinthians. Not everybody returned to the gospel Paul had proclaimed. Not everybody returned to listening to what Paul the Apostle had to say, but most in the church did. And so in response, Paul does two things. He makes plans for a third visit to Corinth, and he writes them a fourth letter, which is our current letter of 2 Corinthians. And in this letter... What we're going to discover is Paul not only vigorously defends his apostleship, not only vigorously explains and defends the gospel, but he addresses all the multiplicity of charges that had been leveled against him. Which means that when we read through 2 Corinthians, it ends up being the most intensely personal, uh, the most intensely autobiographical of all of Paul's letters. And so as we read through 2 Corinthians, on the one hand, his words will be sometimes defensive, they will be provocative, they will be sarcastic, they will be strong, even threatening in some places seemingly, but on the other hand, marked by a deep compassion, by love, by forgiveness, by a joyful spirit through it all. And in the midst of 2 Corinthians, there are two great paradoxes that Paul sets forth several times in the letter. We'll see them as we work our way through the book. Number one, that weakness is the source of strength. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. When my trust and strength is in the Lord, that's when God's at work. When I trust myself, my abilities, whatever that I have, that's when disaster comes. Weakness is the source of strength, and suffering is the means by which, Paul, by which God's power and glory shine forth. Paul will talk about his thorn in the flesh at the end of the letter. Some kind of severe affliction that never went away. And Paul says, it is through suffering that God's power and glory shines out of my life. And so we will see those two paradoxes several times in the letter. Well... With all of that, let's notice our text very, very briefly this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the first two verses. Here's the way the text reads. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to notice, I've entitled the message, you notice, Marks of a Gospel Minister and a Christian Congregation. What does Paul have to say about himself in these opening two verses? And what does he have to say about the church in the opening two verses? First of all, I want you to notice, what does Paul say about himself? He says, verse 1, I am an apostle by the will of God. That statement sets the tone for the whole letter, which is nothing less than a vindication of his apostolic call and ministry. Paul says, I didn't choose my career. I am not self-appointed. God is the one who called me into ministry. And you think about this beyond Paul's experience. For anybody who is a pastor, whether it is myself or anybody else, somebody who is a missionary, someone in Christian work, if you say, well, I went to career day... 
And there's a lot of options out there. The pastoral business, that sounded kind of good, so I went that route. Each one of us that is a minister of Jesus Christ had better be able to say, I'm only here because God called me here. Paul makes the point that I was called into this ministry. He was going to Damascus to kill Christians. He didn't pick this out as a profession. God called him. God grabbed him and put him into the ministry. Every true Christian minister of the gospel had better be able to say, I'm not self-appointed. I'm called by God to this line of ministry and work. And you think about Paul here as he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. What he's saying in his context to the Corinthians, so if you marginalize me, um, if you don't listen to the gospel that I proclaim, if you are hostile to me, I'm an apostle of God. What does that say? You're hostile then to God himself. Be clear on that, Paul says to the Corinthians. And so I'm an apostle by the will of God. Every true Christian minister should have the sense, I'm here because I was called. Number two. Paul makes the point, he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. My ministry is inseparably connected with the person and work of Christ. No true minister of the gospel preaches his own agenda. Nobody gets up on a Sunday and has the axe to grind that seems to be every Sunday. And no one preaches social action, who's a true minister of the gospel, or what you read in the paper last week, or whatever it is. Christian ministry needs to center on Jesus Christ and proclaim him and him alone. And Paul says, that's what I do. I am his servant. I proclaim his glorious person. I proclaim his glorious gospel. I don't promote myself. I don't have my own message. I don't have my own agenda. It is all about Christ and Christ alone. You can tell anybody who says, I'm a minister of the gospel, if the focus is not Jesus Christ, walk away. Walk away. Because any true minister of the gospel will have Jesus Christ and his glory and his kingdom and his righteousness and his person and his gospel front and center. Paul says that's the case for me as I proclaim the gospel everywhere. And then notice number three. Paul says the gospel I proclaim isn't unique to me. Because some of the false teachers were saying, Paul's kind of on his own. He's got this message which is sort of his own religious interpretation of stuff. Don't listen to him. What does Paul say? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. I'm not some maverick religious leader. There are many, many others who proclaim the same message that I do. In fact, if you went down to verse 19 in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul mentions Silas also. So this is not unique to me. I'm not a lone ranger religious person. I preach and proclaim the same thing that other true apostles and ministers and missionaries proclaim. And so right in the opening words, Paul begins his defense even in the greeting. And then what does Paul have to say about the Corinthian church? What does he have to say to us about our congregation here? Notice the first thing. Paul says to the Corinthians, don't forget that your church is a church of God. How does he address the congregation? To the church of God that is at Corinth. It is God who has called your congregation into existence. It wasn't me. 
It was God through his spirit that called this congregation into existence. It is God who sustains you. It is God who is at work in your lives. And yes, you notice your congregation is at Corinth. It is in Corinth, but it is not to be of Corinth. Remember the scriptures, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so your church, remember that you are, yes, in a particular location, but don't let Corinthian culture color your lives and attitudes and morality, whether individually or as a church. You are a church of God. Do not reflect the values of surrounding culture. That's what the Lord would say to us here at Grace. You are a church of God in Botno. Don't let surrounding culture and attitudes and ideas and philosophies, don't let that color who you are as a congregation and as members within it. So Paul gives that reminder. Then, surprisingly, you think about this congregation which had so many problems, you find it out in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Talk about a church that was a headache to Paul. Paul says, don't forget all of you are saints. How, how does he address them? To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints. What is a saint? Well, that's a, like an extremely holy person, we tend to think. You know, 99% of us are just like average Christians, and then there are some saints. They're just like above and beyond everybody else. What you find in the New Testament is everybody who is a true believer is called a saint. The word saint means to be set apart. You're to be set apart from the world unto God. You're called to holiness. You're called to righteousness. And where does our holiness and righteousness and sainthood come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. When we trust in him, his righteousness, his holiness is credited to us. So when God looks at us, he sees us as holy and righteous and as saints in his sight. And the point that Paul makes in 1 and 2 Corinthians is you are already saints. You need to learn to live like one. All of you, if you are here this morning and you are trusting in Christ, you are a saint. The Bible's clear on that. But the call to me, the call to you, is learn increasingly day by day to live like a saint. To live like one who is holy. To live in the righteousness that is found in the Word of God. Don't forget you are saints. And then here's the last one. Don't forget that you Corinthians are not the whole church. To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints or who are in the whole of Achaia. Achaia was like the state, the province. It'd be like the Lord saying to us, to the church that is at Botno with all the saints who are in North Dakota, because Achaia was the province, grace to you and peace. The spiritual world doesn't revolve around you, Paul says to the Corinthians. You're not the pinnacle of what a congregation should be. Just because you have money, just because you have influence, just because you live in this fantastic city, which is powerful and noteworthy, the, the Christian world doesn't revolve around you. There are many saints in the whole province, to say nothing of the whole world. The church doesn't begin and end with you. And then Paul concludes his opening greeting by wishing them, you notice, grace and peace. And so with these words, we begin our journey through this challenging and sometimes difficult letter. But it is a letter filled with many memorable, powerful statements. 
And in closing, I want to just highlight a handful of them so that you might look ahead with anticipation to where we're going. So if you have 2 Corinthians open, I'm not going to comment on these verses. I just want to highlight them. And just pick a couple examples. Notice chapter 3 and verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is of God. Look down at verse 17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Chapter 4, verse 7, these very familiar words. Chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then go down to verses 17 and 18 in chapter 4. For this light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then these very familiar words, chapter 5 and verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Look at the next verse. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then verse 17. Many of you know this one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then again, these familiar words, chapter 6 and verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Go down to chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and notice verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then chapter 9 and verse 7, Paul's talking about giving. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then chapter 9 and verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And then finally, over to chapter 12 and verses 9 and 10. Again, familiar words undoubtedly to a number of you. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then the end of verse 10, For when I am weak, then I am strong. There is a lot in this letter of tremendous power. Some of these statements will entail a message of their own because of 
the, the power and the significance of what Paul writes in this letter. And so, and so my prayer is over these next number of months, as each of you listens to what God has to say in this letter, that you might experience in your own life, in a renewed way, God's grace and peace. One of the things Paul's going to talk about early on is how do you deal with trials when they come? How do you deal with heartbreaks? How do you deal with circumstances that are beyond your control? He's going to start with that. And, and, and so my prayer is that not only in that passage, but as the, the letter expands from there, that you might experience God's grace and peace in new ways in your personal life. And that together as a congregation, because Paul's talking to the Corinthians, kind of a fragmented congregation, that my prayer would be that even though we're not fragmented into all kinds of, of segments and little parties of one kind or another, that through working through this letter, that God will in new ways draw us together in His grace and in His peace, that we might experience it together in new ways in this congregation. God has called us together. We are the church of God proclaiming Christ here in Botno, North Dakota. I want you to hear this letter in that spirit as we work our way through and see what we can glean for ourselves and for the life of our congregation um, as we work our way through this book in the months to come.